Hello, everyone, and welcome again to How Digital Technology Changes Work, the podcast from MW Advisors. You've got Neil and Craig with you again today with the usual 30 minutes of banter about uh, technology industry stuff and nonsense. And Craig uh, tells me just now he's, he's now anchored his mic, so there should be no beard noise, which is good. <laughs> Although the beard might have been the thing that was creating the most interesting content, which you'll see. <laughs> Who knows? Self-aware. Okay. So uh, today <laughs> we've got two topics for you. Uh, Craig's going to talk about blockchain and poetry auctions, and then oh, yeah. I'm going to, yeah, uh, uh, and I'm looking forward to that. Are you going to deliver it in in sort of iambic pentameter <laughs> in rhyming couplets? <laughs> yes, yes. With, with prospect of early promotion to driver. That's the only kind of rhythmic thing I ever learned at school. There we go. <laughs> and then I'm going to talk about uh, UiPath's momentum and the RPA frenzy. So, Ooh, Craig, frenzy. So I, I want some poetry. I want some energy. I want, some, some I want Benjamin Zephaniah. I want, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, you don't want kind of turtlenecks and galois and. Uh, oh, that no, would do no. too. That's a bit different. Yeah. It's a bit early in the morning, maybe. Any, any who, any who. So, uh, blockchain and poetry. Well, um. I, actually, I'm going to talk about blockchain and poetry and non-fungibility. There you go. Okay. Uh, tell you about that. Um, um, that's the, the, the interesting kind of extrapolation uh, for the poetry story. And that story is uh, news of supposedly the world's first blockchain poetry auction. It probably is. I mean, I, I've certainly not heard of one before. Uh, who knew that there was a need? Um, and that was created last week at something called the Nifty conference and, and hackathon in Hong Kong and and apparently marked the first time that poetry had been represented as a non-fungible token or asset. Now uh, you may be wondering what on earth I am talking about. Um, so let's uh, let's look at each of these concepts in turn uh, starting starting with the last one. So what's a, what's a non-fungible asset you might have asked? Well let's stand with, start with what a what a fungible one is uh, for those who, who aren't aware of the distinctions. So a, a fungible asset is something which isn't unique so it can be uh, interchanged with other identical ones. You're able to use them to represent uh, units of value because they can be exchanged between parties because the thing rather than what it represents isn't isn't valuable in, in and of itself. So it's a bit like a, a, a paper banknote, okay? So the, the material right. that makes up the note, yeah, you know, the paper and the ink and, and maybe strip of metal or so on isn't particularly valuable in and of itself, but what it represents, you know, X many pounds or dollars or euros or so on, now that is of value. Okay, so working backwards, a, a non-fungible asset is the opposite. Okay, it's where the thing itself is valuable and unique and distinguishable from, from others of their ilk. So in terms of uh, tradable assets, think of things like collectibles, you know, uh, limited edition uh, baseball cards, Pokemon cards, uh, first edition books, uh, vinyl first pressings, comics, art, and that kind of thing. And it's the characteristic of the thing. So, you know, who's on the baseball card, how many were printed, how rare it is, uh, what the book is, how large its first print run was, all that kind of stuff that differentiate it and make it desirable by, by connoting a value, rather than the thing itself being a representation of some, some other value. So, I mean, actually, as a, as a brief aside, interestingly, there was a, a bit of fungibility crossover uh, a couple of years ago uh, in the UK when the first plastic banknotes were, were placed into circulation here. And uh, a chap called Graham Short, who's a micro engraving artist, etched 
tiny, tiny five millimeter wide portraits of Jane Austen's face and some quotes from her works in the kind of blank, transparent bit of the new five pound notes, oh, if you remember uh, this. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and he did five of them, I think. And he went uh, went into various shops around the country and he, he spent them over the counter and he didn't didn't say he was doing it and didn't reported it afterwards that, that this is where he'd let these notes into the wild. And I think there's one actually still in circulation to this day that hasn't been reportedly found. Uh, and actually, that, uh, the same guy has recently repeated the process. He's released a half a dozen fivers that have got uh, portraits of Harry Kane, who's the England football soccer captain. Uh, uh, on on the note to commemorate the team's achievements of the World Cup. Apparently, he was going to do more if England got any further, but he kind of stopped at the semi-final. <laughs> he he hung up his etching etching this material. Is the last one, this is the last one ending <laughs> the kind of like whole stop it. <laughs> it's got half a face, yeah, his nose, maybe like one eye or something. Um, so anyway, so so the, the, so as fungible tokens, the, these notes simply represented five pounds in value, but the uniqueness that, that Short's engraving uh, bestowed upon them, uh, you know, they're limited edition sets, uh, leaving aside for a moment uh, whether he should have been dragged off to the tower for defacing the Queen's currency and so on. Anyway, the, the, the uniqueness that he gave these notes meant that they leapt in value as distinct, non-fungible and rare assets and uh, reportedly commanding sort of 50,000 pounds a piece to, to collectors when found. So that was an interesting aside. Well, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting. But back to the, the back to the funging and the non-funging of, of, of poetry and blockchains and so on. So uh, uh, cryptocurrency tokens like, like Bitcoin and, and Ether and Ethereum, they're designed to be fungible because it's the value they represent generally that's taken to be the, the, the value of the particular token itself. However, sometimes it's desirable to support non-fungibility. Um, say if you want to create scarcity in an asset to drive up its value and so on, or to trade on that in particular. And that, uh, that property already exists for certain digital assets in, in video games, for example, um, like uh, avatars and so on within a kind of gaming network and gaming environment. Yeah, but, but there the scarcity uh, and the, the, the veracity of, of, of claims of uniqueness and so on, that's managed by the gaming company. They have to, to validate any claims and ensure security so people don't steal each other's assets and so on. If you wanted to do this in a, in a, a decentralized uh, blockchain world without recourse to any central controlling authority, then, then what do you do? But happily, there are ways and means to, uh, to do this on, on popular blockchain protocols. Uh, Ethereum, for instance, does it with something called the ERC721 token set. Uh, and it, it's basically j just includes some some smart contract in uh, in the token that sets out how it needs to be managed and owned and traded and so on. And why you want to do that uh, uh, leads us on to talk about poetry eventually, okay. finally. Okay, <laughs> we're getting there. Um, um, because uh, one application for non-fungible tokens on blockchains is in supporting the trade of digital collectibles themselves, uh, such as, uh, were you aware that the CryptoKitties phenomenon on um, uh, yes. Ethereum? I'm aware of that phenomenon, yes. You're aware of that phenomenon? That always crashed the Ethereum uh, mainnet last year. Um, or the trade of uh, physical collectibles where the token is an analog to the rare item itself. Um, so, like Pokemon cards or first editions or whatever. So, right. so that this trade can continue without the need to involve 
a central authority um, to mediate the sales and, and, and assure the authenticity and so on. So that, that that's why you might want to do that on a, on a blockchain. And the poetry bit, okay, got to it finally. The poetry bit comes in because, well, it's it's quite hard to make money out of uh, writing poetry. Um, there isn't the same uh, volume of consumption that's likely to generate the same kind of licensing revenues as you might get in novels and music. You know, there isn't really a, a Spotify for verse in the same way. Um, mm -hmm. But there is, you know, a limited market for first edition books, some of which are volumes of poetry and limited edition prints and, and so on. Uh, but that's currently paper based, doesn't scale very well. Um, so some people thought, well, how about let's use that as, a, as an example, as a, as, a, as a use case that maybe wasn't crying out <laughs> to be blockchain, but, but let, let's show as a proof of concept. So uh, a New York based crypto asset investment firm called CoinFund have been working with um, a London-based blockchain startup called Uniquex, U-N-I-Q-X, I don't know how you pronounce that, um, who are uh, Ethereum-based um, digital asset, decentralized marketplace kind of people. And what they've done is they, they've put together a proof of concept, which is the thing they were showing off at um, uh, the Nifty Hackathon last week, that enables uh, buyers who, who may or may not be poetry fans, but they're probably uh, crypto investment fans um, for the test purposes anyway I'm not quite sure how large that intersection is of, of poetry poetry reading uh, avid poetry reading crypto investors there's there's a Venn diagram to show in the comments <laughs> um, so, so, however many of these guys there are uh, probably small but anyway, however many of these guys there are they were able to to purchase limited edition cryptographically signed by the poet copies of a poem um, where the non-fungible token on Ethereum hashes to an off-chain copy of the poem itself that they can sort of display as they wish, but they are the authenticated owner of that signed edition. And so they can trade them on if they like as well, just as you might trade on a, a dusty limited edition volume of print. So the whole kind of poetry example here might well be uh, verging on the far-fetched in terms of ever actually there being a market for the trading of non-fungible digital poetry assets um, to rival uh, that of first edition Jane Austen's doing the rounds at Sotheby's. Right. But, I, I, but I do stand by the fact that the general use case is interesting, okay, because it opens up another market to potential disruption from blockchain applications. And it might add, a, and it also might add another angle to that whole digital twinning, digital logbook thing um, where, you get a physical asset like a, like a car, and that's got a digital version of itself enshrined somewhere that records like, the uh, origin and maintenance characteristics of its component parts, details of ownership transfers and so on. And they're all indelibly recorded, let's say on a, a blockchain record or this hash to one. Um, and that's done across the kind of end-to-end lifecycle management process. What if there was a, a non-fungible token included in the digital logbook that enabled it to be traded as a proxy for the vehicle itself? So, um, and then all the, all the data about the vehicle would, would follow through as the ownership was transferred. So um, perhaps it's not just crypto kitties and, and uh, digital analogs of Pokemon card trading and, and poetry. Maybe there is uh, more to this sort of funging, non-funging, uh, business on the blockchain uh, that could potentially uh, disrupt the way some supply chain business models are, are constructed as well. So that's uh, that's why I thought it's interesting to talk about it. You may not have thought so from the initial title, uh, blockchain and poetry auctions, but that, that's where I'm coming to. There you go. 
So, th so there's a broader thing going on here, which is really about, um, like you said, non-fungible assets, or um, uh, I guess, uh, what kind of assets as most people would think of them in the real world, um, yeah. and the ability to track them and trade them and own them uh, more effectively, yes. I suppose. And having that um, having that ownership recognized and, and recognized uh, in a kind of blockchain world so you don't have, there's no recourse to some central authority to authenticate your ownership. Um, you're, you're able to prove this because of the, um, uh, the cryptographic hashing and the, and the entry of the token on the blockchain and so on. So yes, it's, it, I guess it's about opening up uh, some types of operations, some trade that, like you say, it, it might be quite familiar in the real world, but making it possible to do that in, in a blockchain environment as well. So, no poetry in, involved in your piece? No rhyming Not couplets? as far as I'm aware. Uh, anything could change in the next 10 minutes then. I know, I, I could try and do deliver it as bank quest, but I think that's probably just a bit silly. Um, it is. So, so you're yeah. going to talk about UI paths, momentum, and, and, and RPA stuff. Is that, is that right? Yes, um, exactly. So, um, a few days ago, I was chatting to an exec at UiPath about its latest uh, growth milestone that it subsequently actually put a, a news release out about. Uh, and I thought it was worth relaying a few of the, the stats uh, to you and to our listeners, because it's quite astounding, really. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about what that means more broadly. So. Um, so this is a company that has now passed uh, $100 million in annual recurring revenue. Um, it's now got more than 1,500 customers. Mm -hmm. um, and there's about 200,000, I think over 200,000 users now of their technology in those 1,500 customers. Mm -hmm. um, just since January 2018, so that's seven months-ish, mm -hmm. it's opened 12 new offices. <laughs> across wow. Europe, across Europe, Asia, and the US, mm. and it and this is the this is the really interesting one. I think um, it's now got over a thousand employees. Where only three years ago, guess how many employees it had three years ago? Oh, uh, two hundred, hundred fifty. <laughs> My word. So yeah, three years ago it had ten employees, and now it's got over a thousand. Well, that, that's quite well. You have to have some somebody to fill up the twelve offices, I suppose. <laughs> Maybe Maybe they're all painters and decorators, you think? <laughs> yeah, or <Well>, catering. <laughs> um, so on a on a more serious note, um, it's clear that from these kinds of numbers that industry in general, and not just um, the, the places where RPA started, business process outsourcers and banks, not just them, but industry in general, are going completely bananas for this stuff, for RPA. Mm -hmm. um, however, I mean, this is kind of really, it's not unprecedented, but it's very unusual. It's got very unusual levels of growth like this, and, and it's not without its risks. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I think it's like being in the opportunity to go and imagine like a fantastic exclusive all-inclusive summer party with with the best DJ, awesome food, fabulous guests, the best cocktails, flowing <laughs> freely. 
Um, it's a hell of a lot of fun. There. There. Yeah, it's a hell of a lot of fun. But if you're not careful, sooner or later you're going to end up with stains on your shirt, a massive, <laughs> a massive cleaning bill from a taxi firm, and at least at least one friend who won't talk to you anymore. Indeed. Yeah. Yes. So is is that got, experience talking? <laughs> you've got to be careful. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think, it's the, the there is a, a sort of there's a point to that that slightly silly analogy because um, for UiPath and its peers, that a lot of them have got big funders right backing them. They've put a lot of money into these firms and they want to see returns, right? So yeah. there's money being thrown at these guys, and they're being told to grow, 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 grow. Um, and uh, it, the challenge is really hard, right? Because they all want their, they all want to get their returns. Uh, the investors and and the, the vendors like UiPath, but not only UiPath, they're not really incentivized to try and moderate their growth. Mm. Um, uh, and I know a few examples of firms that are spending money on RPA technology and people to implement it without any real understanding of what they want to achieve, what they can realistically achieve, how they're going to achieve it, or how long it might take, and course therefore whether it will ultimately be worth it mm. um they they've kind of they've been bitten by the airline magazine kind of bug <laughs> someone senior has read an article and and how you know about how this stuff is changing business and they don't want to be left behind so okay you know make it so let's go and mm. buy some of the stuff and make it happen and figure out how to use it you, you know these guys like i said they're not really incentivized to moderate their growth but there has to be some kind of thing in place some kind of capability that they can build or deliver um, that helps them manage that effectively otherwise there's going to be an all right almighty mess yes um, and I think that I think it really has to for me anyway the the major focus has to be on customer success um, and there's a number of different ways that companies create and build customer success teams uh, some more successful than others and I think here I when I say customer success, I don't mean people who are essentially salespeople who are incentivized on renewals. Mm. I mean, I mean people who are completely independent of sales, who don't have any sales target at all, and whose only responsibility is to make sure that customers get the best possible results from mm. their investments. So, you know, a team of people who go in whenever there's a significant customer investment, and their only job is to make sure that the customer gets a decent result and kind of comes away thinking, yes, this was really worthwhile for me. I used it in the appropriate way. I got mm. the, I got a return that was that made sense uh, and that makes me want to go further, ideally. Because um, I think if, you, if, if these vendors don't place the right kind of investments in customer success, I think it's very likely that within the next year, 18 months, the whole thing will just crash and burn. Oh, and you have the RPA hangover you've been alluding to there and taxi bill party and <laughs> taxi bill rpa taxi bill yeah. yes so so um you know i think for, for the vendors that focus on customer success i think is going to be really 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 important and for adopters it, it it might sound a bit motherhood and apple pie but it's just so important to understand the applicability and the real value that you can get from rpa before you start it sounds really mm. obvious, but but I know some organizations aren't really doing that well enough. And you need to not only look for work that's routine and that relies on the use of systems that aren't particularly amenable to more traditional kind of programmatic integration 
that's most people know about that. Mm -hmm. You know, you really need to look for an appropriate context in terms of that, the operating model. And specifically, you'll really get benefit from RPA if there's already been some re-engineering of business processes mm -hmm. in, in a more general sense. So specifically, some attempt to to look for opportunities to identify work that's being done in different ways in different places and then to standardize that and to centralize it so there are appreciable volumes of that work being done by an identifiable group of people so if you've got um if you've got an, a, an operating model that is essentially kind of it's just organically grown up in the wild and different groups mm -hmm. of people doing different things in their own different ways um it's going to be much harder to get uh, a real decent uh, return from RPA because it's going to be bound up in so many other uh, re-engineering uh, challenges. If you've got an organ a part of your organization where you've already started to standardize and centralize that work, um, you've already got conditions that make sense, right? Because you've got a group of people whose work is already essentially to some extent robotic. Um, that there's a there's a significant flow of work already coming into that group, um, and it's you've re you've really kind of already knocked down a number of the barriers that, that that get in the way, and that's only some of what you need to think about. And and really to just to take take a step back, the important thing is to realise that our, today's RPA technology is only one answer to um, to the the question of okay, how do we improve our efficiency? How do we um, how do we streamline our work? How do we become more compliant? How do we make people more effective? Um, as we've said in, in recent research reports, there's a whole load of things that are happening, not just RPA, but mm. kind of revitalized workflow market, decision management, in a revitalized integration market. Um, there's a whole load of stuff happening, uh, and not notwithstanding AI as well uh, being part mm. of this picture. So you really need to make sure you understand the context where this stuff works and you apply it appropriately. Um, so look and look for vendors who have decent customer success investments. Uh, on, that, on that last point, um, are, you, are you seeing, I mean, we were talking about UiPath um, principally initially. Are, are you seeing much evidence of that kind of customer success um, angle in the in the RPA space are others going for this and recognizing the uh, the pitfalls of un, unfettered uh, growth without uh, looking at that angle um I've, I've certainly heard execs talk about it I I don't yet know um, the extent to which they've they've actually made the investments the challenge is that um, whereas it's comparatively easy to hire salespeople people who can demo the technology, those kinds of people, um, it's comparatively hard to find good customer success people who can really um, sort of bring the resources of the vendor to bear on the customer's problem because you need a particular yeah. kind of individual to really make that thing work. They need to be kind of technical, but they need to be very customer focused. They need to be great at persuading, working across boundaries within the company. Mm. Um, so that they're, those people are harder to harder to find so um, mm. it's not like you can just hire you know 500 of them overnight <laughs> or a thousand yes or indeed a thousand really i i guess what it sounds like you're uh advocating from from the uh, uh 
customer community is to um, beware, don't don't regard um, RPA as kind of um, lazy automation that just kind of takes takes care of things that you uh, haven't thought you've had time to, to properly look at um, in any great kind of strategic way. It, it needs to be part of a, a broader strategic um, thought around where your organization is going and, and other, you mentioned AI and stuff as well, other aspects of automation that are going to come in in other places. So it, ne it needs to be bedded into part of the mix rather than just kind of farmed out as something that takes care of the ugly ends of the edges. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes, I think that's a very nice way of putting it. Yes, exactly right. Brilliant. Well, I understood. Fantastic. Results. <laughs> Chalk that one up. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. Well, well, thank you very much, uh, everybody, for listening. Uh, we've talked about blockchain and poetry auctions and non-fungible assets and crypto kitties and all kinds of other uh, fun things. And we've also talked today about um, the, the kind of you know explosive growth in the RPA market and things that we all need to be careful about. Um, we really hope you're still continuing to enjoy this. If you've got any feedback, any questions, any ideas for topics or people you'd like us to speak to, um, we'd love to hear uh, all about that and to um, implement some of those suggestions. So thanks again very much for listening and we'll speak to you again soon.